for what God has to say to us through his word? You know what, I, I, I've noticed that um, the more I have really dove in to God's presence in my life and the more I've uh, allowed him to, to really work on me at every moment that, he, that I can give him, I've noticed that uh, I don't need, you know, I, I don't need something that blows me away like I've never heard it before as much as maybe I have at other times. I find that when I'm most excited about Jesus, you could read me a scripture I've read a million times and it gets me really excited. I find that it's in my most driest times, spiritually dry times, that's when I needed something extra. You know what I mean? You know, entertain my brain. Tell me something that I've never heard before. I find when I get real plugged in and I get excited about Jesus, that his word is literally alive. And it, and it, it can be something you know and you've been taught since you were a little kid. And it will come alive to you as if you heard it for the first time. That's when the word is doing its work in you. Because that's when you know your spirit's being ministered to you get to the point where you know so much that you just need something new for your brain. And it's somebody that comes up and tells you a nice little thing. They study and oh, I'm the first one that's ever preached this. And that always makes me nervous when I hear that. <laughs> 2,000 years of Christianity, you're the first one. Hmm. Might be fishy. I'm not writing it off right away, but my, my suspicion flags go up a little bit. Because I found that the living Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, somehow... Even the stuff you think you know, God unlocks doors and, and breathes breath of life into things that, that you don't even realize were dormant or sleeping or even dead. And, and all of a sudden, these things that you thought you knew, you realize, man, I haven't even scratched the surface of all that he is. When, when Paul wrote to the Colossian church, they had a group of teachers come in and uh, try to tell them there was a secret knowledge. You guys have... You, you guys know the Christianity that the apostles preach, but we got something new. We have something that you have to kind of, you have to get to our level to understand. It's a secret knowledge, and, and, and you know what? You, you join the club, you get to know some stuff. And the apostle Paul says this. He says, these guys, they're not holding fast to the head. They're not holding fast to Jesus. And he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when you begin to discover that, you realize that it's in him that every little bit of wisdom, every little bit of knowledge is found in him. And anything that's outside of him is worthless. And I'd like us to dig into uh, the book of Titus today. And I want to just point out a couple of, of pretty basic things, but something that I feel we need to be reminded of. Um, I love these pastors. I mean, I love, <laughs> if, you, if you've heard me preach long enough, you know, I, I pretty much say every scripture is my favorite. But... Um, I really do love Titus and First and Second Timothy and some of these pastoral letters because um, they're, they're so very practical in many ways and yet so very spiritual. Uh, but one thing about Titus, and it's not Titus that wrote it, it's Paul writing to a, guy, a young guy named Titus, one of, his, one of the, the fellows that he had raised up and trained up. And uh, how many of you have <laughs> ever read some of these letters and realized that that these guys might have had dreams of, of being, you know, taking over Paul's big stage or, or getting to go with him and, and being the celebrity helper. But most of the time, they got sent on the missions nobody else wanted to go on. 
And a guy like Titus gets parachuted into the island of Crete to uh, start some churches and to start a work. And uh, not, only, not really just to start it, but, but the gospel had already been preached there. He was going to set some things in order and to, and to really uh, um, maybe fix some things that were undone, maybe say some things that need to be said, and really start um, a community that could be uh, worthy of the title of, ch- of, of the church of Jesus. And so as he's preaching this to Titus, as he's writing this letter to Titus, he has to address some unfortunate things. He has to address some people that have come in. It seems like it happens a lot in your Bible, if you've noticed. A lot of these letters, they preach the truth, but they also have to correct some things that were, that were wrong. And, and a lot of times it's, you know, some loose cannons that have come in and so often it was, you know, either people coming from uh, the, the group, as Paul calls them, the, the tribe of the circumcised, the group of the circumcised, coming from the old school Jewish ways and telling everybody, these are the rituals you need to do. And if you don't, you're probably not saved. You can't be a Christian without this. He, I mean, the Bible doesn't teach us to, to just ignore all this stuff. It doesn't teach us to throw away this rich heritage. But at the same time, they had people coming in that were telling them that if they didn't get a little bit more Jewish, they were a lot less Christian. And uh, even, even bringing in some, some rules and regulations and celebrations that weren't even part of the, the Old Testament, but were kind of invented in between. And so this religion was being put on these new believers and um, it wasn't just that. You find in other letters, there were all sorts of crazy teachings. The Gnostics came along and, and, and had some crazy claims about, about uh, Jesus. Did he really come in the flesh? Was he really risen from the dead? Was he even really crucified in the sense that we think? And, and it really confused a lot of people. And so we see a great mishmash of this stuff in, in Crete. By the time the gospel has really been founded in Crete, a lot of other stuff has come in. And so I want to read you some things that the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. And we're going to skip around a little bit, not too much, but a little bit, so that we can um, just get a a good overview of all that's being said here. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he writes to young Titus, he writes this, he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, so the old school Jewish crowd, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. You know, every message can find an audience, and every audience can fill some pockets. And so these guys have come in, and they're teaching something, and they're upsetting whole families. So it's not like you can just leave them alone. He says, you gotta, you got to silence this. Now, these aren't people in the world. You know, the Apostle Paul says in another place, he says, what do we have to do with judging the world? So it's not our business to judge the world. That's not what we're after, but we must judge ourselves. These guys were in the church. They were being invited to these gatherings. They were upsetting whole families, and, and uh, that's a big deal. And so here it says in verse 12, one of themselves, in other words, a, a Cretan, he was a, actually a 6th century B.C. Uh, philosopher from Crete named Epimenides, and he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, what the Apostle Paul is supposed to say after this is, of course that's wrong. (laughs) Of course they're not. Let's say what God says about them, right? (laughs) And then he says something that, that has always just befuddled me why he would write this, but he says, 
this testimony is true. And I know we've said this before, but how would you feel if the guy that first preached the gospel to you wrote a letter to your pastor, said, Lord Minster people tend to be lazy. They tend to eat, they, they tend to eat too much. They tend to be evil beasts. I mean, this is liars and thieves. Can you imagine if, if, if this guy wrote and said, you know, and it's pretty much true. That's the way they are. That wouldn't be too fun. We wouldn't like that guy and he wouldn't be invited back. But he says this to them and he says, really, he's, he's, he's speaking a little bit less about the common folk and more about these teachers that have risen up and have caused so much trouble. He says, these guys are a perfect example. So you have to understand there was a culture on that island and uh, that culture, thank God there is a heavenly culture that when the gospel is preached, you don't, you don't have to stay the same person you were, and you're not defined by where you came from. You're not defined by where you're born. You're not defined by your old culture. We've been redeemed and bought back and transferred into a new kingdom and a new culture. Amen? So you don't, you don't have to be defined by your family. You don't have to be defined by all that. You're his family now. But these guys have let their old ways creep into their new ways. They've let their old culture be part of their present culture. And he says, here's how you stop it. Reprove them severely so that they might be sound in the faith. He's not talking about your average baby Christian who's just a little bit off. He's talking about people that know better. See, there's different levels of reproof, isn't there? I mean, I, I, I don't really... I don't, I don't really get on to, to my son. I, I, don't, I don't get on to him for, for doing something that a three-year-old would normally do. But if a 30-year-old does one of those things that a three-year-old does, then they need a little extra help. If they're of sound mind, they've got no, no issues going on, they're, they're just a healthy person in every area, and they just chose to do what a three-year-old does, then you need to address it differently, right? So we're talking, the people he's reproving soundly are these false teachers that have come in. And he says, they're going back to their old ways. They were shysters before, they were crooks before, and they're becoming crooks again. And he says, you need to reprove them soundly so that they would be sound in the faith. So hope's not lost. They can be rescued here. Then he says this. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. He's talking about the 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 restraints that they've put on people, the rituals that they've put on people, the things that in another letter he says, uh, people were saying, you can't taste this, you can't touch this, you can't do this. And it was all man-made religion and tradition. And instead of it enabling them to live holy lives, it actually was hindering their walk with Christ because their faith was now being put in man-made tradition, man-made religion, old rituals, old myths, which in the years between the last prophets and the coming of Jesus, there was plenty of time for some weird myths to arise. Especially coming from the Hellenistic Jews that had been over, um, had not, not been living in the Holy Land, but had been li- living over here, or had been living in the Holy Land, but adopted the Greek ways when uh, the, the Greeks kind of took over, and you had guys like Antiochus Epiphanes just doing a just abolish, you know, 
committing the abomination in the temple and, and doing all these things. And so they were mixing the Greek ways with the Jewish ways. And they were mixing idolatry with, with the worship of the one true God. And they came up with some weird myths and weird stories. And maybe you've heard some of them. And I'm not going to bring them up tonight. But some weird stories about angels. Some weird stories about what we should and shouldn't do. Some weird stories about all sorts of stuff. He says, stop paying attention. He says, you reprove them so they become sound in the faith. They stop paying attention to weird myths. Oh, how I long for the body of Christ to be free from stupid myths and fairy tales. Wouldn't it be wonderful? See, because what we've got is awesome. And what we've got, I still don't all understand. And we will constantly be amazed by the things God does. And it will, at times, it'll be beyond what we can comprehend. The things of God are, are not easy, are not simple, always simple to understand. Sometimes he does things that we just don't expect. But there are also these weird little myths that don't help anybody. Paul talked to Timothy, he said, they're, they're fables and tales fit for old women. No offense to any elderly women. But he says they're not doing anybody any good. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those that are defiled and, listen to this, unbelieving, Unbelieving in what? Unbelieving, see, there's no faith in what they're doing. Their, their faith is in what they're doing and not in who they're, they're doing it for. So he's talking about what they're eating. He's talking about their rituals. He's talking about how they're living their life. He says nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. He says in chapter 2, or sorry, in verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now, that is a harsh statement. They've gotten to the point where they are worthless for any good deed, which is sad because when you got born again, the Bible says that we were created, we were his masterpiece, we were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us that we would walk in them. The coolest thing about that is you were prepared for those things, and he says those things were prepared for you. So there's things that God's called you to in your life that you have been masterly crafted just for. And the amazing thing is he's prepared those things for you, that you would walk in them. But he says these guys have gotten so off track, they're worthless for any good deed. They can't do what God put them on the planet to do. They're not really accomplishing anything because they're so caught up in their own world of man-made um, fairy tales and religion. He says it's doing them no good. So here it says they're worthless for any good deed, and this is something that pops up a lot in this letter. The, the term good works or good deeds. We just have to understand that the world has hijacked those words, hijacked those phrases. When we think of good deeds and good works, so many people think of that, and they separate that from the work of God in your life. They, they think that's something you do, and the stuff God did, does is in another category. But we're going to find out in this letter that there is no such thing as a good work or a good deed without the grace of God working in your life. There is no such thing as a good work or a good deed apart from Jesus. Because he says, apart from me, you can't do anything. You can work at the Red Cross, you can, you can do all these things, but if it's not through him and in him, it will accomplish nothing. You know, we often say love is a verb, and I think that's a great thing, because love is not just a feeling, it's what you do. But love isn't just a verb. 
It's not just what you do, because in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I were to give all my money to the poor, but I didn't have love, it wouldn't count for anything. So love is more than just doing something. Because you could do something, give all your money to the poor, but if there wasn't the love of God in it, it wouldn't count. So I want to read um, some stuff in chapter 2, and we'll just skip to that. He gives some practical advice to every member of the church. In any category they fall into, he gives them some advice. And I would, I would urge you to go back and read it because it's, it'll be a blessing to you in every area. But he says this. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Thank God. Now, let's just ask ourselves, when did the grace of God appear? In Jesus, right. When Jesus appeared, the grace of God appeared. Is that right? You can't separate the grace of God from Jesus. Doesn't the scripture say that, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us? And it says that, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. When the grace of God appeared. So we know the grace of God has been present even from the beginning, right? You can find God's grace in the old covenant. Certainly you can. It's not hard. It's there. However, he says, now the grace of God appeared. So there's a moment where it was made, revealed to us. It was manifested to us. And that was in Jesus Christ. He said, so now the grace of God has appeared. Past tense. There was a moment in time where the grace of God was made available and made real to us. And it says, what does it do? It brought salvation to all men. Not all men received it. Not all men accepted it. But it, but it paid for everybody. And it brought salvation available to everybody. It says, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now listen to that. It's, it's, it's not something that we automatically think of when we think of the grace of God, that the grace of God will instruct us. Did you know that? See, if your idea of the grace of God is just a covering up of some boo-boos in your life, it's, it's so short. The grace of God does so much more. The grace of God empowers you to be who he called you to be because you can't do that on your own. The grace of God is God is through Jesus Christ, him doing what you could not do through you and for you. Thank God it was the grace of God that put Jesus on that cross and raised him from the dead. He died a death I couldn't die. He paid a debt I couldn't pay. He, he, he was the firstborn amongst many brethren. He was resurrected for me so I could be resurrected. But in the same sense, the Bible says if anybody talks in front of the group, if anybody preaches... Let him speak as if God himself is speaking. If anybody serves, let him serve in the strength that God gives. Well, that kind of includes everybody, doesn't it? And so it says, so that we would all be good stewards of the, great, of the manifold grace of God. That word that we translate manifold is a Greek word, piccolos, which means multicolored, multi-shaped. It fits every situation. You see, that's the thing, is that there is a grace on your life to fit every situation. Yeah. That, that, that's why God picked all of us, and we're, we're, we're a strange group. I mean, even this, even this group right here, we come from all sorts of different backgrounds and classes and age groups and, and countries, and, and God put us all together. But think about the body of Christ now in Lloydminster, how beautiful it is, how diverse it is. Now think about the body of Christ in Canada. 
Now think about the body of Christ all over the world. Isn't that amazing? So if we were all trying to define what that looked like and everybody had to match a certain uh, mold and an idea, we would fall short of doing all that God sent us to do. So the grace of God is multifaceted. It's, it's, it's diverse. God's grace working through you will look different than God's grace working through me. It will have some common elements and it'll have a common foundation and it'll accomplish a common goal. But the grace in your life is different than the grace in my life. And that's a good thing. But one of the things the grace of God does is it teaches us stuff. It instructs us. One of the first things he says is it instructs us to deny something. And it's something you couldn't deny without the grace of God. Did you ever try to deny some of those terrible habits and things before you got saved? And how many times did you try to quit? And how many times did you try to get away from it? And you kept getting dragged back in. Well, now the grace of God is teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Thank God. And live sensibly. Now, sensibly means with a sound mind. You're not, you're not, you're not losing your control that, that you are able to live in this present age that's gone mad. <laughs> if you ever look around and say the world is, is going crazy, take cheer because the world in these guys' days was just as crazy. I mean, if you lived in, in, in the Roman time, if you were Roman and, and you were reading some of these letters. Now, the Cretans were under Roman rule, but they would flinch if you called them Roman. They were Greek. But they were, you know, the, the Greeks were just as weird. The Romans and the Greeks at that time and, and, and time before that had some strange stuff going on, guys. Some weird stuff that, that even our culture would go, whoa, you can't do that. And to them, it was normal, in fact, celebrated. I mean, one of their emperors had a wedding. He's already married. He has another wedding. Oh, before you think that's weird, wait till I tell you who he's marrying. He's marrying a little boy dressed up as a girl. Nice little sham wedding. That's the emperor. That's the guy running the country. Suddenly, our MPs, MLAs, prime ministers, they seem really normal, don't they? So if you think your world is mad, theirs was too. So to live sensibly is not talking about what the world would call sensibly. It's talking about that God has given you, has enabled you to have the mind of Christ and to be of disciplined mind. What does the Bible say? God's not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And we can see and think like he sees and thinks and thinks straight in a world gone crazy. We don't have to be crazy. Thank God. What is that, what is, what, when does that happen? When we deny ungodliness and worldly lust and we let the grace of God train our mind to live sensibly, righteously. Thank God. There is a righteousness. That's the right way. That's God's way. And the righteousness of God looks weird to the world. It's the right way in a crooked world. But we are enabled to live sensibly righteously, and whoa, godly. Yes. Huge, isn't it? Grace of God taught us how to be like him. See, because that's the end of it. That's, that's really the point of it. The grace of God will mold us into being more like Jesus every day. Here's the thing. In this verse, it doesn't say the grace of God will teach you to feel like Jesus or just to think like Jesus. 
It's teaching you to live differently. If your reality of the grace of God in your life doesn't change the way you live, it doesn't have the power it should have. It should change the way we walk. It's got to. So it teaches us something. And it says in verse 13, so we're going to live right, sensibly, righteously, godly. We're denying ungodliness and worldly desires. And we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The grace of God teaches us to look ahead and look and be excited. And it says, of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Wow. He gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back from every lawless deed. Now, if, if that word every doesn't pop out at you, it should. Every single lawless deed, every deed that you did that rebelled against God, everything that you ever did that, that went straight in the face of who he was, everything you did that piled against the debt, that piled up the debt against you, thank God he bought you back from that. It's not on your account anymore. But he redeemed us from every lawless deed, not just not just the penalty of those lawless deeds, but the power of those lawless deeds. I've not just been set free from the consequences of sin. I've been set free from the power of sin in my life. I don't have to sin anymore. The grace of God has set me free from that. Jesus laid himself down for us and bought us back. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Now that gets exciting. Zealous. Think about that word, zealous. Think about somebody that's, that's a zealot. Think about somebody that's got lots of zeal. Think about these people. Do, do, do those people seem boring to you in any way? They might, they might make you a little uncomfortable every now and then, but zealous people are, are not boring people. And we can all be zealous, but it's not just zealous, it's zealous for something. Zealous for good deeds. Now, you got to read this and, and read it as exciting as it is because when we read these words, they've become so trapped with religion and, and, and tradition that they've lost some of their power. Think about the word purify. When I say purify, most of the time, all we're thinking about is what's not there. And that's part of the process, isn't it? God purifying us is certainly taking some stuff that shouldn't be there. But think about it. He's not leaving you with a vacuum. He's not leaving you an empty vessel. Pure is full of him. I wouldn't say this bottle is full of pure water if all I did was remove mud from it and nothing was left afterwards. When he says he wants to purify for himself a people for his own possession, there's stuff he had to get rid of, but there's stuff he had to fill you with. A pure vessel is somebody that he has poured himself into to the degree that it pushed other stuff out. And that is what happens, isn't it? Yes. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you get filled with him, you fill yourself up with his presence, stuff gets shoved out that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Come on. See, if you're just living your life trying to get rid of the bad stuff, you're empty. And Jesus, in fact, said, you know, I could cast demons out of you. I could clear the house. I could clean your house. But if you don't fill it with something, those evil spirits will come back. And they'll be worse than they were when you first had them. So when we talk about somebody that's purified, 
I am talking about stuff that had to get, we had to get rid of. But it's not really we had to get rid of. He says he's purifying us, isn't it? He's purifying for himself. Now, when he does it, he does a good job. He's purifying you. He's purifying me. People for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Like I said, this phrase, good deeds, pops up a few times. When we hear good deeds, zeal is hardly ever attached to good deeds. I mean, really. But zealous, excited, the stuff you go to sleep thinking about, the stuff you wake up thinking about. And and, and I know a lot of us would read that and go, well, I'd love to be that way. I'd love for it to be that way, but I don't feel that way. Well, hang on to the promise of God. Do you know that his desire for you is that his grace would teach you something, his grace would train you, but his grace would equip you to be zealous for something? Zealous for every good deed. Zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, that's tough. He's talking to a young guy. He's talking to a young preacher, a young pastor, and he's saying, don't let anybody disregard you. You know what that looks like? Just think about this young guy walking in, and people are like, I don't know. And he's not allowed to just let them think their own thing. He he says, don't don't let anybody ignore you when you're talking about this stuff because it is the crux of some of the stuff that I sent you there to fix. He says in chapter three, he goes on and he says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now remember, this is cross-cultural. This goes against the way their culture is. Remember who they are? Their culture is full of Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, thieves, liars, crooks. Now he's telling them, remind them. You see, this is the fun part. Did you know that sometimes you just got to be reminded of something you already know? We get on this doctrinal teeter-totter where we, <laughs> we go back and forth, and we go to this point sometimes where we go way into the field of religion and legalism. And all it is is about a checklist. Are you checking off all these things? And if you're not, you're not doing it right. And people dry up and they're, they're crushed spiritually. So then we run away from it. We run way over here. And we find ourselves in this weird zone where, where we're saying, you know what? I'll tell you what it's like. If God doesn't tell me, I don't need to do it. And his grace will teach me how to do it. So, so if I don't get it from him, I don't get it at all. And, and we start to believe that whatever we feel must be right. And that nobody can ever tell us we're doing something wrong because that's the legalism we ran away from over here. I remember that. It was torture. So I'm way over here. I ran away from legalism. So now nobody can tell me anything. Oh, you're getting all legalism. That's law. That's law right there. That's law right there. I'll tell you what. No, it's not. See, the context in which he's talking in was the grace of God has appeared. He gave himself for us. And he says here, remind them of some things. To malign them, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. To obey, be subject to rulers, be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. There he goes again. Every good deed. Be ready. Be zealous. Be ready. Remember the other guys? They were worthless for good deeds. They couldn't be, they couldn't be used. But when your heart's in the right place and you're ready and you're letting God work through you, 
You're not only zealous, but you're ready at all times. Then he goes on and he says this, for we also were once foolish ourselves. I love that because every time I start to think somebody's an idiot, I remember I was more of one. We all were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were spending our life in malice and envy. We were hateful. We were hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, just get that picture in your head. Just paint that picture in your head where he says, but when the kindness of our God and our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the coming of Jesus. That's what Jesus was. That was his landing on this earth. That was it described. Jesus showed us the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for humanity. When that happened, see, this is who we were. We were, we were terrible. But when, that, when he appeared, he saved us. I love that. God launched a res- rescue mes- mission, and it was Jesus. When, he, when this appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've did, done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He didn't save the good people. He saved all of us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see something in this. When we think about Jesus saving us, we usually think in the context of heaven and hell. And there's nothing wrong with that. He, thank God he saved us from hell. But the context here is not, not talking about hell at all. Hell's not the subject here. Thank God for being saved from hell. But that's not the big thing here. The big threat that he's talking about isn't about hell. Because look at how he saved you. How did he save you? By the washing of regeneration. That was the first thing that happened. You were regenerated. You were reborn. How did he rescue you from that old life? How did he rescue you from a mad world? How did he rescue you from a perverse culture? He totally recreated you. He regenerated you. I want you to think of that word, regeneration. He breathed his life in you. He washed you. And when, you, when he washed you, I mean, you were so washed that you were brand new when you came out. The washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. So here's what he did. <laughs> we needed rescuing. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. We were all like them. That would really help us to minister to the world and to minister to our city. Just remind yourself, we were all like them. You say, no, no, I've always been a church-going person. Well, you know and I know, and I know better than a lot of people what it's like to be a church-going person and still need to be dramatically saved and rescued. I wasn't out there drinking. I wasn't out there doing drugs. I wasn't out there, you know, stealing. But I was just as dirty as anybody else in need of a Savior. He washed us. He rescued us by washing us, purifying for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And here's what he says. 
He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly. You get that word? Like, there's no budget with the Holy Spirit in you. He poured out the Holy Spirit on us so richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that you have no reason to think that that person has more of the Holy Spirit or could have more of the Holy Spirit than you. Now, they might be more full than you are, but that's not their fault, and that's not God picking favorites because he poured it out on all of us. And all we've got to do is ask. He says he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that by being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. If it's a trustworthy statement, boy, we should know it, shouldn't we? This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and they're worthless. Reject a factious man, a factious man who is one of those guys that just is trying to cause division, trying to pick apart, just trying to start his own little group. And, and it says man here, but guys, women, just as easy. It says reject this person. And isn't it weird that the Bible, the New Testament, tells you to reject some people? There are, there are times where he says don't even eat with these people. He says, here, reject a factious man. Somebody who, what is a factious man? Somebody who's trying to start factions. Reject that kind of person. That's not the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ binds us together when we're we're united with the head. He says, reject that factious man after a first and second warning. So you don't do it right away. You give him a chance. Now, he's not talking to everybody. He's talking to Titus here. He's talking to the leadership. And he says, you got to address this issue. It's going on in the church. Talk to this person. If they don't listen to you, give them another shot. If they still don't listen to you, reject them. That sounds harsh, but that rebellion is one of the most cancerous things, the, the fastest spreading poison in a body. He says, just get rid of it. Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. That is, that is a a rich topic that really sometimes needs to be discussed in churches. But what I really want you to see here is verse 8. That this is a trustworthy statement. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, see, that's the first thing was that we believed God. What did we believe God? We believed in him. We trusted in him. By faith, we were saved. By faith, we held on to Jesus and found him to be our only hope. By faith, we found our righteousness in him. We found his righteousness. By faith, we were cleaned, we were washed. By faith, we trusted that our only hope was him. Those that have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Now, here's what I want you to see through all of that we've read. This stuff might seem automatic. And, and to be truthful, when you get born again, a lot of this stuff, God just starts to plant in you and, and there's some things that you just know to do. But there are some times where it's not a bad thing for us to be reminded, for, the, for us to be reproved at times, and for somebody to give us a nudge because sometimes we just need to say, I've got this treasure inside of me. 
But God is not going to snap me in a trance state and make me do stuff. Do you know that? So many people are thinking, well, if God, if God would just give me a gift, I know I'd use it. Have you ever thought that maybe he has? Okay, well, here's the deal then. God, tell me what it is. Send a prophet. Let me take a personality test. Let me find it at the altar. It may happen that somebody tells you. It may happen that you suddenly realize it here. In fact, lots of people, it happens that way. But I've also found that sometimes it's just in the act of doing and being faithful in what God's called your, your, the group that you're in and the people of God. And you just start doing stuff. And all of a sudden, you start discovering things in you you didn't know were there. Everybody's waiting for this moment they get smacked upside the head with a gift. You know what I mean? Like, there's just this moment where I'll know and I'll have no doubts about it. I've never met anybody that had a gift that just immediately, the moment they got it, they had no doubts, no fear, no, no second guessing. There's a certain point in your life you just got to start doing something. Not just saying doing anything. You got to be led by the Spirit of God. You got to listen to the voice of God. But sometimes there's things that you discover when you're just in the act of obeying. You're walking it out and all of a sudden you go, I didn't know this was in me. There is a treasure inside us, guys. Do you realize that he says, I purified you so you'd be mine? (laughs) Thank God. You couldn't be his until you were purified. I purified you so you'd be mine and so that you would be zealous for good deeds. He says, those guys that have gotten off track and have not put their faith in me, but instead put their faith in these empty rituals, he says, those guys, they're worthless for good deeds. He says, here... I want you to be careful. See, some of us think, oh, careful. We're not supposed to be careful, right? Well, you're not supposed to be careless either. He says, there are some things that you need to take care about. In fact, you look it up in the New Testament. There are times where he says, take care. That's not always a bad thing. He doesn't want you to worry, but he does want you to care about some stuff and to be diligent about some things. And here he's saying, let remind them all these things. Speak confidently about these things. He says, this is a message you need to preach so that people would be careful to engage. You need to be reminded to engage because it's so easy to disengage. Or wait till somebody else forces you to engage. But what if you just said right now, I believe Jesus. And I, I trust that he has placed something in me, that his grace is working in me, that his spirit is in me, that there is a treasure in this jar of clay. And that in the process of being obedient and just engaging, when I engage, the grace of God will prove itself to be more powerful than me. And those gifts will show themselves and that grace will demonstrate itself. But you got to engage, guys. You got to choose it. There's stuff that he's, he's empowered you to walk in. But, you know, I don't think Peter was on the boat. You know, really, he was the guy that first suggested walk out on the water. Jesus didn't come walking on the water to the boat going, hey, guys, who wants to go for a walk? Peter came up with the idea. Jesus approved it, said, okay, come on. Lord, if it's you, call me out on the water. Okay, come on, Peter. Do you guys think that Peter's in the boat and all of a sudden he felt his feet getting hot? He started to elevate above the ship. 
Whoa, whoa. No, he felt no change, I'm sure. I'm sure he felt just exactly the same. What's he doing? He's responding. (laughs) I was dumb enough to ask this question. Jesus called my bluff. Calls me out. I don't feel any different. See, this is what we're looking for, isn't it? We're looking for our feet to suddenly feel superhuman. Then I'll walk in the water. But it's in the act of getting out and just sticking your foot on something it shouldn't be able to walk on that all of a sudden the power of God is demonstrated in your life. God has created us not just, thank God, first and foremost for relationship with Him, but we do have a mission. And relationship with Him is always tied to, it's, it's, it's thank God, in and of itself, it's just to know Him. But if you know Him, you know that God is an act of God. If you know Him and you follow Him, you'll find out He's never just lying on the couch, that He is a God that is moving on behalf of His people, that He is a God of love, He's a God of action. And when you know Him, you're filled with those same desires. Sometimes we say, I don't know what to do with those, but I want you to embrace the fact that there is a zeal that comes with knowing Him. There's a zeal that comes with being purified. There's a zeal that comes from saying the grace of God is teaching me to get rid of this stuff so that I could be filled with this so that I could go out and do what he's called me to do. And I've got to make up my mind and you got to make up your mind tonight that I am going to engage and trust that when I engage in the things that God has set in front of us, the grace will be there to do it. The power will be there to do it. I'm not saying to do something God didn't call you to do. But you know what? He'll put opportunities in front of us all. Sometimes you're just faithful doing what's in front of you. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I've done every, I've said this before, every job there is in this church, I've done it at some point in my life. I can't say I was called to all these things. I can't say I I I was called I don't know if I ever felt a strong call in my life to, to look after toddlers. There was never a moment where I was like seven years old and the Lord visited me and said, you're going to work in the toddler ministry for a bit. Oh, okay, thank God. I've been waiting for this. No, it never happened. But it was something that I could do and there was, there was a need there. And so I trusted that God, you know, I trusted that if I stepped in and I was faithful, that, that God would use me in that area. And I didn't treat it lightly. You don't treat those kids like they're just a stepping stone to something better. You, you treat them as somebody that God cares about. And this is my mission right now. And it takes care. It takes thought. It takes will to engage in something that God's called you to. And when you do that, you'll find the grace of God's big enough. The power of God is strong enough. And thank God, it'll, it'll teach you some things, it'll train you up in some things, and it'll empower you. These guys, remember what their culture was? Their culture was lazy. They were lazy. And if you like it or not, our culture has ways of creeping into our doctrine, into creeping in our way of worshiping Jesus. For them, laziness, deceit, being crooks, That's how, that was honored in their culture. You could rip a guy off. If you could make a week's wage by ripping a guy off in half a day, you're a hero. 
And the, the gospel changed all that. So he's saying, you've got to remind these people they're not of that culture anymore. Remind them. Remind them to engage. Remind them that God has enabled them, that he wants to fill them and purify them so they'll be zealous. Because you know what? I don't believe that God has called you to be a grape that he can just squeeze the juice of until you're dried up and throw you away. I believe that the that wellspring of life is inexhaustible. I believe that he's placed something on the inside of you that whenever you tap into it, it'll be there. And if you're going through the things that you feel like you should be doing and there's no zeal there, it's just dry and it's tiresome and it's hard and it's weary, you don't have to be that way. And I thank God for your faithfulness. I thank God you didn't give up when it got hard. Because there's going to be times where you might not immediately get up in the morning and go, I can't wait to take the garbage out. But you don't have to spend your whole life walking through the motions. You can be zealous. But you've got to engage. It's easy to disengage. Say, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. Or if God wanted me to do it, Pastor Jonathan would come up and tell me, you have to do it. But most of the time, it doesn't happen that way. Or a prophet would come and tell me, maybe you would. But God wants you to say, all right, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to seek you. I'm not just going to blindly go in. I'm going to seek you in this. But I'm going to trust that if I'm careful to engage in what you've called me to do, and if I'm careful to engage in some good works and some good deeds, you'll be there. And I'll, I'll begin to discover more and more of you in the process. Amen? God is good to us, and he's, he's doing something. His grace is big. His grace is bigger than us. It's working in us. It's working through us. Let's stand up today. We're going to just ask God to confirm his word in us. Um, I don't know what the Apostle Paul would say about Lloyd Minsterites. I sure hope he's nicer to us. He would that Jesus thinks better of us than he did about the Cretans. <laughs> but I have a feeling we all need to be rescued from a way of thinking. Yeah. That we all need to be redeemed from a mad, perverse world. And there's a new way of thinking. There's a higher way of living. There's a better way. You have to trust God that he's got that for you. So Lord, we thank you that you have called us your people. You called us a people for your own possession. What an honor. What a privilege. Lord, we, we come to you knowing that, uh, that you have prepared for us something greater than we've imagined. You cleaned us cleaner than we could have been. We know we were those guys. We came in with dirt. We came in with baggage. We came in with issues, and you set us free. You bought us back, and you washed us, and you cleaned us, and you purified us. Let us be zealous. God, I want us to be zealous. We want to be zealous to see your work in Lloydminster. We want to be zealous to see your hand in Canada. We want to be zealous to see it even in our own families. Lord, I know that sometimes we've disengaged because of fear. Sometimes we've disengaged because of hurt. Sometimes we've disengaged because we were offended. Sometimes we've disengaged because we were just, quite frankly, lazy. So stir us up. And bring the fire back and the zeal back. That when we engage, when we, when we say, I'm going to go, I'm just going to step out in faith and see God's hand.
that, Lord, you'll never let us down. You would never leave us out there hanging dry. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.